So this morning, as we begin our time together, once again, I want to thank you for joining us. And uh, as we kick off, I want you to think of a moment or a time where you have faced and experienced unmet expectations. It might be, uh, it might be a particular event that didn't go quite as well as planned. That happens from time to time. Or maybe your husband that uh, fell for, in a conversation uh, leading up to your anniversary or whatever for, from your wife, you fell for that, oh, don't worry about getting me anything. You know, maybe, maybe that was the unmet expectation that, that, uh, that he alluded to a conversation later on. You see, there are times that things do not go as well as planned. You see, a few weeks back, Katie and I, uh, we celebrated our 13th wedding anniversary. We actually got a picture of our, we are running into our reception. We were late um, because we had a photographer that was taking her time. It, now, while, as we look at this, isn't it crazy how Katie's style has totally changed? And, um, and I look totally the same. Uh, I'm kidding. No, it's, uh, that is me, I promise. But uh, yeah, we celebrated our wedding anniversary, and we we uh, we we were celebrating being married for 13 years. And uh, what's interesting about our wedding, however, is we were not engaged for an extremely long period of time. We were actually engaged for about three and a half months. Now I'll tell you this: we had no problem getting a wedding together in that time frame. But I recently just uh, officiated the ceremony of our intern, stu- former student ministry intern who moved to Pennsylvania just, I guess it was about two weeks ago, and apparently they thought a year was not enough to plan a ceremony. So I'm not sure what happened, but in the whole pre-marriage counseling portion leading up to their wedding, we talked about the importance of not only preparing for your wedding, but also preparing for your marriage. So in that three and a half months, that's what Katie and I did. We prepared for our wedding, we planned, and we we, we, we had caterers, flowers, all that kind of stuff. But we made sure that we tried as best as we possibly could to prepare for our marriage. However, nothing prepared us for what happened the day after our wedding. So what we did, we got married uh, right outside of Nashville. And then our wedding night we spent in Nashville at the Opryland Hotel. And then we went on our honeymoon the, the next day. And while driving through Chattanooga, Tennessee, Katie and I hydroplaned on the interstate, went across about three lanes of traffic, came back and hit a concrete wall. Not exactly how you envision your honeymoon going, right? Now, we'll tell you this. I shared this story in the first service, and one of our elders, Jerry Flanagan, came up to me. He said, I know you think yours was bad. Me and Georgia, whenever we got married, the cruise ship sank. And I was like, are you, kid- like, are you kidding me? I'm pretty sure he's trying to one-up my story. I'm not sure if I buy it, but I'm like, your cruise ship sank, and she stayed married to you this long? Because I remember whenever we hydroplaned on the interstate, we go and we hit the barrier, and because of, of the car safety, the fuel pump shut off, so we couldn't start the car, and I called 911, so I'm on my cell phone, I called 911, I said, listen, we're on I-24, we had a car wreck, and uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Like, car won't start, we need something. They said, well, where are you? I'm on the interstate in Chattanooga, and I had a car wreck. Well, what's your mile marker? I have no idea. Well, sir, we can't help you until we know know the mile marker. So maybe not the best Christian testimony. I said, drive down the interstate, find the car that's facing the opposite direction, and that's me. So I have no idea. It felt like an eternity. 
we sat there. There's an 18-wheeler right in front of us. He is not happy that we have caused this much of a disturbance for his day. Sorry about that, sir. And uh, the police get there. We get the car running, and uh, we finally make it on our way. You know, not exactly a fairy tale moment, but with a bent axle sitting in the nearest parking lot, which just so happened to be a church, we are sitting there trying to envision, what do we do next? I'm sitting there thinking, can she annul this thing? Like, is, just, is, this, is this a bad sign? What have I gotten myself into? You see, nobody envisions himself having a wreck on their honeymoon. Or nobody envisions himself being on a cruise ship on your honeymoon that sinks. But even though, even though that's not how we envisioned our honeymoon, with the help of my parents who actually came and picked up the car and got it fixed, and I convinced somehow the uh, people of Enterprise Rent-A-Car at the age of 21 that they would rent me a vehicle. So we finished our trip with a beautiful purple PT Cruiser, and uh, it was a lovely, lovely time. Oddly enough, the PT Cruiser did not have cruise control, of all things. I'm dead serious. It was so odd to me. But anyways, there's a good chance that you weren't in a car accident on your honeymoon, but there's no doubt that you have met or that you have had unmet expectations. After all, I think it's safe to say that the year 2020 may go down as the year of unmet expectations. Amen? You see, it wasn't long ago, if you remember, on social media, you had Facebook friends or whatever that uh, they thought 2019 was so crazy that they could not wait to get to 2020. You remember, they said, we can't wait to turn the page on this year. Many of them were saying, 2020 is my year or hashtag 2020 vision. But it's, quickly how, or it's, it's amazing how quickly we go from we have 2020 vision to is 2020 over, right? You see, this morning's passage is in Philippians. And it's written by a man who, had, who was facing unmet expectations, and yet it did not change his focus. If you have your Bibles, go to Philippians, as I mentioned earlier, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. The word of the Lord reads this way. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard And to all the rest of that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, uh, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see, as we continue looking through this particular letter um, that's written by the Apostle Paul, there's a few things that we know that I want to point uh, that I want to point out to. So first off, the Christians of Philippi, the ones that are receiving this letter from Paul, they have a strong interest in Paul. As Pastor John mentioned last week, whenever whenever a letter would be received, people would flock to uh, to to hear or to read the letter, hear hear what was written. They knew that Paul was sitting in a jail cell. They knew that he was awaiting trial, and uh, they were they were familiar with the situation that he was in. Yet Paul faced his own list of expectations. Rather than preaching and teaching, which is what we obviously know Paul is really um, gifted in, Paul is sitting in a jail cell. We also know that during this time, 
uh, during this time were uh, the reason the, the, the letters were written, the primary purpose of writing letters were to inform friends or family members of the person who's writing, of their circumstances. So the transition from the initial greeting, which is what Pastor John covered last week, into the letters like crucial, critical information is often made, and we see it in this passage, by the statement, I want you to know that. So today, in today's passage, Paul is beginning to address the matters in which he desires to address. And while the passage has two sections that we're going to cover this morning, one focuses uh, primarily on the fact that the gospel has progressed through the preaching of Paul's rivals. We also see that there's an overarching power of the gospel that is able to progress even in difficult times. You see, beginning in verse 12, Paul refers to what has happened to him. We see that. He says, I want you to know, that's kind of the introductory into the, the part, the, the, the meat of the letter. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really advanced, has really served to advance the gospel. You see, we, we're not 100% sure of what Paul is referring to. We're not sure if Paul is simply referring to the fact that, um, of, of, of what's occurred. We're not sure if he's referring to his imprisonment at the time. I think we can agree if we're sitting in prison, we were writing a letter to someone, we kind of want to highlight, hey, just so you guys remember, I'm in jail, right? Or the Apostle Paul might be referring to in the past, he has experienced many troubles uh, many sufferings uh, because of his relationship with Christ. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You see, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul has suffered multiple near-death floggings, a gruesome stoning, frequent shipwrecks, dangers on the road, uh, uh, both from people and, from, uh, and, and at places. You know, he, he, suffered, he suffered multiple just dangerous experiences. You would think that, that, uh, that because of Paul's sufferings, and not only his sufferings, his endurance, that he would be elevated above criticism. In fact, Paul alluded to this at the end of his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17 says, for now, for now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. You see, we know that that's not what happened. We see that that's not what happened in today's passage. Paul's imprisonment has ruffled the feathers of, uh, of some that are, that, that are some of the leadership of the church. They're upset because they feared that Paul was causing harder times upon them. They felt that Paul, knowing the establishment in Jerusalem, knowing that the, that the establishment in Jerusalem hated him, which is the reason why he was arrested, they believed that he knew what would become or what would be the outcome of him arriving in Jerusalem. So as a result, Paul was bringing unwanted attention on the church. So regardless of the approach that Paul is taking, we can all agree that neither one of the approaches is preferred. You see, suffering at any level is by human nature desired to be avoided. Amen? Like, have you ever thought about um, whenever you're just inconvenienced, maybe it's a, maybe you hit a bad red light and you're like, why me, Lord, right? Like, like you know, I mean, we just don't like to be inconvenienced, especially whenever, whenever it messes up our genuine flow or, or something that provides comfort for us. We see that, uh, that, that it's, not des it's desired to be avoided. Yet Paul highlights that regardless of the hardships he's endured, the gospel is still advancing. Which brings us to our first point this morning. Through God's sovereignty, we can rest in the fact 
that he is able to use our situations, both good and bad, in order to advance the gospel. You see, we see that because God is a sovereign God, that he is able to use any of the situations that we find ourselves in, he is able to use those as a way to bring the gospel to other people. We see that the scripture teaches us that the gospel advanced in pagan Rome. We see in verse, uh, in, the, in verse 13 of what we covered earlier, Paul is writing, says, so that it has become known because of his suffering, so it has become known the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the imperial guard consists of nine, around 9,000 hand-picked soldiers. These were the best of the best. They were honored with double pay, good pensions. They were entrusted with special responsibilities. And among these responsibilities is, uh, is something Pastor John referred to last week, is guarding uh, the, the imperial prisoners by an attached chain. So part of this responsibility that you have is you are chaining yourself to a prisoner, so there's absolutely no privacy, you're there. And, um, which that means that Paul had an opportunity um, to basically be forced to be around um, to be around this imperial guard, these imperial soldiers, for an extended amount of time. I'll take a pause right here just for a moment because you see, Paul has like the ripe opportunity to share Christ with individuals because they cannot leave, right? It's something I tell our students all the time. Like they have many individuals, those that are in public school, have many opportunities to share Christ with their fellow schoolmates because by law they can't leave the building, right? Like they are, they're kind of forced to be there. So, so these guards are chained to Paul, which means that they have interacted with Paul. And even though a few of the, the guards were chained to Paul, the gospel effect was exponential. You see, as guards were chained to Paul during their watches, they heard not only the gospel from Paul directly, but they also overheard conversations that Paul was having with other prisoners. You see, and although Paul could have viewed this season as a waste, knowing that he wasn't able to partake in what he was accustomed to, being preaching and teaching, God used this opportune imprisonment to bring the gospel to the very heart of a secular political power in Rome. You see, this serves as a basic yet necessary reminder God is in control of everything. You see, God is in control of everything. Whenever we feel like we are in absolutely no control, God is still in control. God hasn't been caught off guard by any of the chaos that we are experiencing. You see, this echoes the words from Joseph while he was addressing his brothers that sold him into slavery. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, it says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Scripture points to the fact that, that although some things may, be, may seem bad, may seem negative to us, because of God's power, He is able to use it to bring honor and to bring glory to Himself. You see, God is able to take these events and glorify Himself because of the power that He has. So we can rest in the understanding that God is still in control. The Philippians would, um, 
would have to expect that in this section of the letter that Paul was going to give an update on a personal level. They, you would think that they would have expected that Paul would describe the conditions that he finds himself in. Yet Paul's gospel-centered perspective can be viewed in full display in this passage. You see, Paul is not whining about his current situation. He's not complaining that God isn't using him in the mission field like he thinks that God should. You see, Paul is not even denouncing the objections and criticisms that is being received by those that are speaking negatively about him. You see, even though Paul is stuck in prison, Paul is able to rejoice because Christ is still being proclaimed and the gospel is advancing. What's interesting is that Paul offers very little information about his personal condition, but Paul does not offer the Philippians an update not only on his well-being, he doesn't update the judicial proceedings. Paul is far more interested in reporting how the gospel was doing rather than how he was doing. Theologian Karl Barth wrote, He just would not be an apostle if he could not speak objectively about his own situation and abstraction of the course, from the course of the gospel to which he has sacrificed his subjectivity and therewith also all objective interest in his person. To the question, how is it, uh, how is it, or how it is, with him the apostle must react with information as to how it is with the gospel. You see, however, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just through Paul's physical circumstances that God chose to use in order to advance the gospel. In this particular tough season that Paul is facing, God uh, God was showing Paul that he did not need him on a stage um, uh, teaching in order for the gospel to advance. You see, Paul also uncovers that there are two types of evangelists at this point. You see, the first group is described as preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. R. Kent Hughes writes that uh, Paul was suffering from the classic malady known as the hatred of theologians. You see, the two terms, envy and rivalry, are terms that are echoed by Paul as vices, in Galatians chapter 5 and in Romans chapter 1. You see, whenever someone describes you as working out of envy and rivalry, those are not very encouraging terms. You see, a middle-aged theologian um, offers a glimpse, a practical glimpse at something that is still something that we deal with to this day. He writes, as far as envy is concerned, many express displeasure when they see others in possession of spiritual goods. They feel sensible hurt because others surpass them on this road and they resent them and they resent it when others are praised. You see, that's because we all have a sin-cursed heart. Our sin-cursed nature means that sometimes we actually uh, do not want other people to succeed. If you're on social media, you may be scrolling through and see pictures of someone's 18th vacation this year and you're thinking, well, I don't get paid enough to take 18 vacations. How come they can't? Right, your your mindset is not is not celebrating with uh, with with the victories that someone may have in their life. This is also something that can sneak into churches, where you want to con- compare a church size from one church to the next. You see, this is something that Paul is dealing with. Paul is dealing with the sin cursed nature that we all face. 
You see, upon his arrival in Rome, Paul had an extensive list of ministerial uh, successes. God used Paul to expand the gospel to Asia Minor and also into uh, Europe while fighting heretics along the way. And not only fighting the heretics, but winning. You see, upon his arrival in Rome, the focus of the church shifted to the Apostle Paul, which resulted in some leadership, in some of the leadership of the early church turning green with envy, which developed into a contentious gospel rivalry. You see, it's important to see that this group is not anti-Christ. You see, they are still proclaiming Christ. They're just anti-Paul. You see, this is the type of verse that can oftentimes be, be misrepresented that, uh, uh, to justify heretical teachers. This could be that kind of verse that you say, well, God, you know, God's able to take that good. And, and, you know, even though they're speaking out of envy and rivalry, you know, God is still using them to advance the gospel. You see, it's important that we realize that this isn't the type of verse to justify heretical teachers because it's important to point out that, uh, that even though this group was anti-Paul, they were still pro-gospel. The gospel was still being taught. They weren't being taught that you could work your way into salvation. They weren't being taught if you do this and do this, everything's going to be okay. They weren't teaching a gospel of Jesus plus something else. They were still promoting the gospel. They were still promoting glorifying Christ. Yet they did it, because, um, how, they did it even though they did not like Paul. You see, God still used this group of evangelists to advance the gospel. The second group that Paul points out is a group which represents the majority of the evangelists at this point in time. This group preached Christ as Paul describes from goodwill, in which he later explains in verse 16 what this looks like. Verse 16 of Philippians chapter 1 says, the latter do it, the latter being this group, do it out of love and knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. You see, this group understood that, uh, understood that Paul was doing what God had wanted him to. That his captivity was part of the defense of the gospel. That God was using, uh, was sovereignly using Paul in prison to advance the gospel. You see, this group was motivated to preach Christ by their love for God as well as their love for his apostle. You see, a life centered on the gospel is one that rejoices in loving Christ's glory far beyond our own glory. And that's what we see from Paul. We see that Paul is celebrating the advancement of the gospel and not, and not dreading that, that, that he's not the one out, out evangelizing and teaching as he, would, as he would so love to be doing. You see, we see that Paul does, does not rebuke the evangelists that preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. He's far less concerned what they have to say about him. He's rejoicing that they are promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul offers a glimpse at an example of the, important, of the importance of living a life with gospel centrality, which brings us to our second point this morning. Gospel centrality produces unbiased joy. You see, on a practical level, I believe it's safe to say that uh, Paul could very easily get in a season where he is not the nicest person to be around, Right? He's probably in a season where, where, I mean, obviously things are going against what he wishes. So it's very easy for me to, to believe that Paul is probably could, could find himself succumbing to the negativity that he's facing. After all, he's in prison. He's unable to do what, uh, what he believes God has gifted him to do. 
has been effective in advancing the gospel through the preaching and teaching of Paul. We see that, uh, so, so he's, he's not able to do that. He's guarded uh, by people, or he's, he's, he's chained to his guards, which equals no privacy, as we mentioned earlier. People are being critical of him. They're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, which we just covered. Simply put, there are not a lot of positive things that are happening for Paul at this point. Yet that does not sway Paul from resting in what Christ has already done. You see, if there's a definition of, if there was ever a definition in, the, in, the, uh, in, in Scripture of what it means to rest in the gospel, this is it. You see, Paul is in prison, yet his primary concern is Christ being proclaimed and the gospel advancing. You see, there's no doubt that Paul at, uh, at this point was facing persecution. He was dealing with hardships. You see, in the Western world, here in the Western world, we really do not have to face much persecution, if any. You see, however, we see throughout Scripture, as well as hear from fellow Christ followers across the globe that are enduring in the hardships of persecution, that God uses their persecution to increase their joy in Him. You see, the reason for Paul's joyous nature is that, the, is that the persecution that he's facing is making him cling to the Father even more. You see, Paul's joy is infectious to other people. Now, I understand COVID-19 probably not the best choice of words to use, right? Whatever you hear contagious is kind of nasty, but, uh, but, but we also know that there is some truth in and people's, people's joy can be contagious, right? Have you ever been in a, in a movie theater? I know it seems like forever ago, right? But back in the day, we used to go to these places called theaters and watch movies. And if you've ever been in a, in a movie theater where some, something really funny starts happening, you have that one person who starts laughing uncontrollably, uncontrollably, right? And then what happens? A few other people start laughing. You guys have no idea. I'm typically the one that's laughing like that, and then people are laughing at me, right? Um, you see... We like to be around people that are joyful. You see, there's some people that whenever things are going wrong, to be quite honest, it almost seems to suck any joy that you have out of your life. You see, what we see here is that Paul, although having any reason and every reason to be negative, he is still joyful. His joy is, is found to be contagious to other people. You see, Paul's joy is what makes him stand out. While imprisoned, while while awaiting trial, Paul's joy in Christ was contagious to those that he were around. This brings us to an important question then. How do we ensure that we have joy during tough seasons? You see, the, the, the half-brother of Jesus talks about various trials that we're going to go through or that we're going to experience, and, and we can be encouraged during this tough season. You see, James chapter 1, verse 2, it tells us, Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So scripture tells us whenever tough things happen, that we should be joyful, right? It's pretty difficult to do at times. You see, it seems just a few months ago, for all of us that weren't on the bandwagon of homeschool, we kind of got on that bandwagon pretty quickly a few months back, right? And if you're, if you're experienced with homeschooling your child, if you're not a typical homeschool parent or homeschool family... There were many conversations that echoed what Mr. Incredible says in The Incredibles 2 when he's trying to help his son with math. And he quotes, says, math is math. You can't change math. 
right? I remember sitting across our dining room table from our daughter, from Emma, and I'm sitting there, we're trying to help her out, and she just looked at us. She'd had several hours of, of homeschooling, and she just looked at us, blinked, and then we had to repeat it, and then we were getting upset, she's getting upset, and there was a few times we just had to say, time out, let's go play. Like, we can't do this any longer, right? You see, it's really, it's really difficult in tough seasons where we count it as joyful. You see, this doesn't sound fun if we're going to be honest. You see, whenever times are tough, times are tough, it's very difficult to be joyful during these times. But you see, in this passage, we see that the Philippians, uh, the, this passage in Philippians reminds us that God is still able to work regardless of our negative circumstances. You see, we also see the value in addressing people's criticisms or persecutions with a gospel-centered approach. Some of you guys need to write that down for your Facebook posts. I'm just going to throw that out there. Reply with a gospel-centered approach. You see, how was Paul able to rejoice when people were speaking against him? You see, I imagine that he went back and, and saw the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 5, 43 and uh, 44. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Can't we agree it would be a lot easier if that passage stops right there? be a lot easier, but it goes on in verse 44. It says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, this something's been brought up recently. Have you ever noticed that it is impossible, or pretty close to impossible, to hate the people that you pray for? You see, whenever, whenever there's someone that is criticizing you or there's someone that you disagree with, whenever there's somebody that is just, honestly, that person that gets on your nerves, if you pray for them, that is, a, that is a way that you can have a gospel-centered approach because whenever you pray for those that are persecuting you or pray for those that are criticizing you, what we see is that God is able to use that as a way to soften our hearts. You see, God sometimes uses our prayers as a way to soften our hearts as well as a way to recalibrate our focus on the gospel. You see, through prayer, we are approaching the Father, whom is perfect, who is blameless, who is sinless. And through prayer, we are reminded of how much gr grace we need on a daily basis. You see, we're reminded how much we truly need Christ. So how does Paul maintain joy in a tough season? He stays focused on Jesus and desired for Christ to be glorified more than himself. Which brings us to our last point this morning. You see, Paul offers us a convicting example of a gospel-centered life while reminding us of the comfort provided by the gospel. You see, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, what a life with gospel centrality, how important it is, but what does a gospel-centered life actually look like? Pastor Joe Thorne offers his definition. The gospel-centered life is a life where a Christian experiences a growing personal reliance on the gospel that protects him from depending on his own religious performance and being seduced and overwhelmed by idols. You see in this morning's passage, we see that Paul is not relying on his own religious performance. He's not being swayed by the idols that he may have that could be present in his life, some of which, like I've mentioned a few times, would be really easy for him to, uh, to cling to the comfort of preaching and teaching, he is relying on what Christ has already done. He is resting in the fact 
of what Christ has done is enough. Just like what we sung earlier this morning, what we sang earlier this morning, is that Jesus paid it all. That's what Christ, and that's what Paul is resting in. He's resting in what Christ has done. But as I close our time together this morning, this would be the time that it would be really easy to say, be like Paul, pray, then have our worship band come up. But if we're going to be honest, if you're anything like me, you read how Paul responds in this situation, it probably wouldn't be very, very, uh, very beneficial, right? Because Paul's approach is probably very far away from what my approach would be. You see, Paul, that would be very beneficial, or that'd be, that'd be beneficial to a very few of us in here if I said, be like Paul, and then we dismiss. You see, if we're going to be honest with one, with one another, being like the Apostle Paul is extremely difficult, especially in this situation. Don Carson writes, he says, Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our, mis- our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and the splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. So don't get me wrong, how Paul responds, that's, that's kind of an example that we should strive for. But we also know that not only is it an important example, he also reminds us that in seasons of uncertainty, that God is still in control, that God is still, is still in power. You see, whenever we're in seasons of discomfort, God is still able to move. The gospel is still able to advance. Paul even reminds us that when people are being critical, Christ is still on his throne. Now, again, much of this is easier said than done. But what we also see through the gospel is the comfort that it offers us. You see, we know that because we are living in unprecedented times, due to COVID-19, we can rest assured that God has been as in control now as he ever has been. But we also know there are many times that our faith is shakier than Paul's prison-firmed faith that we see demonstrated throughout Scripture. Even in, even in the times where we do not follow the model of faith, where we do not have Christ-centered joy that Paul demonstrates in our passages that we saw this morning, we can rest assured that if we're in Christ, our standing before God does not change. It does not change because we aren't rejoicing in tough seasons. Our standing before God doesn't change whenever we may go through seasons where we do not have our hope in Christ or we feel like we don't have our hope in Christ. Our standing doesn't change whenever we respond while homeschooling, having a virtual day like we had this past week, and we may not extend as much grace as we should. But because of the gospel that Paul has clearly, it has clearly demonstrated for us, because of the gospel, we are reminded that the Father's mercy is far more than our sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are just grateful for the example that we see from Paul. My prayer is that we be encouraged to see that even in times, even in tough times and times of uncertainty, that the gospel is still able to be advanced. 
God, I pray for encouragement for each and every one of our, our people. God, that we would be encouraged realizing that, uh, that the power is in the gospel and not in us. As we strive, as we continue diving into your word, God, we see that you, that you have remained steadfast, that over and over and over again you remind us it's about what Christ has done and not what we've done. So God, as we see Paul's example of Christ-centered joy and, Christ-centered, and uh, gospel-centered faith, I pray for each and every person that we realize, myself, that we realize that there are going to be times that we're not going to rest in the gospel, but, but your mercy is far greater than that in our life. That even in t- tough times, we're able to rest in what Christ has done. That we do not have to add to it, that it is sufficient for, for, uh, for us, it's sufficient for the sin that we've experienced, because Christ has already paid it. I pray that we are encouraged by Paul's testimony. We are reassured that it's based on what Christ has done and not what we've done. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.